All right, if you have your Bible, grab it and make your way to the book of 1 Samuel that we just read from. And if you are a guest, I am super glad that you are here. It is a crazy day in the midst of everything that people said. We've got, uh, you know, um, Pepe Le Pew over here by the student office that's like patrolling, looking for someone to spray. And he didn't spray anyone, so that's good. Um, <clears throat> we've got this stuff going on with the no ones and they had to rush out here. We have no bulletins this morning. We have got people stuck in New Jersey and we had folks fill in this morning. We got people filling in over in the worship care. One of my own daughters is filling in there because people, you know, are in New Jersey on the way back. So it's just a crazy, crazy day. Um, but maybe in the midst of all that, the Lord has something to say to all of us this morning. And so I pray that we would listen to the words uh, that have already been read uh, and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. So if you were here last week, we started a new series called Prophets, Priests, and Kings. It's really a four-book series, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And we talked about how we need to read the Bible you know, from the beginning to the end, front to back. But then also we have to learn to read the Bible from back to front because after we've read from the beginning towards the end and we find out who Jesus is and all, you know, the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming, there's a promised one, there's anointed one, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's here. Now we go back to the Old Testament and we can see not just in the places where it said the anointed or the Messiah or the Christ, we look back and we see he's actually on every single page. And so big picture last week, we kind of laid that out. And that Jesus is on every page, and we kind of placed these four books on the timeline of redemptive history. But today, we're actually going to get into this, the study of these four books. And, and like we said, big picture, we see Jesus on every page. But now as we even get into, you know, dive into today, even just the first 20 verses, we see that Jesus is in the details. He's in the nitty-gritty of every story within that the add up within this great big overarching story okay it all points to him and so from these first 20 verses this morning we're going to see that verses that are that are about the the birth of samuel like this historical literal thing he was born this is how he was born this is the way it happened but at the same time because of the way the lord uh, sovereignly laid it out and had it recorded for us in these books it also serves as a parable for our lives, and really the nation of Israel's life, though they weren't really a nation, they were kind of a nation, but they weren't formalized. Really for Israel's, you know, kind of a parable for them as well, of just how we are always searching for that thing, or that experience, or that person that will give us meaning, that will give us fulfillment that will fill the void that that's missing in our life something i'm not satisfied something's missing what is that something that'll give us hope that'll give us uh security that'll give us safety that'll give us stability the nation of israel was looking for that in a king and it didn't happen didn't satisfy and hannah looks for that in a son and it doesn't happen doesn't satisfy and we all are looking for that. But being true to Nashville and our country music roots, just we are looking for these things in all the wrong places. We look everywhere but to God. 
And so that's what we're going to look at from the life of Hannah this morning uh, and see, you know, again, in our own lives, this is what we do, whether you're religious or irreligious. If you are irreligious, if you are out, if you if you don't believe in God or you don't believe in Christ, you look for something instead of Jesus. But for those of us who are Christians, sometimes we look for things in addition to Jesus to satisfy us. But the point of the Bible and the point of this text is that Jesus is enough. He is hope. He is life. He is stability. He is security. And so for the glory of God and the good of our own souls, let's take a look at this. First, we're going to look at, you don't have notes, so I can't call you, to, you know, number one. But number one was going to be, let's look at hope misplaced. And then we'll look at hope discovered. All right. Hope misplaced, hope discovered. The name of the sermon was The Birth of Samuel and, the, and Hannah's Discovery of True Hope. So let's look at that together. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me again that Sarah read just a moment ago. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. And so here what we've got is we are introduced in this series into our very first dysfunctional family. And this is probably the most functional of the dysfunctional families we're going to find as we make our way through uh, these four books. All right? We're going to see families far worse than this one, but this one's still dysfunctional. Why? Because the guy's got two wives. Right? It's called polygamy. And the book of Genesis makes it clear that God designed marriage for one man and one woman for life. Not polygamous relationships. So this guy is in sin. This is not the norm. You see it in the Old Testament, but this is not the norm. And so you've got this guy, dysfunctional family, living in sin. And so the Bible here is describing the situation, not prescribing the situation. It's describing it. How do we know this? Because the whole rest of the Bible says one man, one woman for life. That's the definition of marriage, unchanging. But here, yeah, you've got Elkanah. He's got two wives. But the major point I want you to see here is there at the very end of verse 2. This is what sets up the entire story. Look at the last sentence. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. And so this story begins like so many stories in the Bible with a barren woman. It's almost like it's, God calls this out so many times. He has a special care and concern for those who struggle with infertility. Because that's how we would describe her today. We wouldn't describe her as, as barrenness. So we would describe her as someone who struggles with infertility like many in this room have. And so you know the heartache. You know how that hurts you know how you would love to be able to make an announcement of, I'm pregnant. But instead, month after month, it's just frustration, and then the next month, frustration, and the next month, frustration. And we know from later in the text that this goes on for years and years. Or maybe she's someone who was able to conceive, but was not able to give birth to the baby, that time after time she lost the baby, like many in here have. And you know the pain and the gut wrench that that is. It's so hard. And that's Hannah. 
right? Real person, real feelings. This is what she's going through. This is her life. And so every time she goes to the grocery store or the marketplace or whatever it was, every time she gathers with friends and family and she sees friends and family and they're talking about their babies and that's great and that's fine, but for her, every time it's a dagger. Every time she hears a baby cry, every time she sees a mom nurse her child, things that she wants to hear, she wants to do from her own life. It's like a knife to her heart. And so let me just jump in and and, and chat for just a second here. Because sometimes people will, when we we walk through times like this, we walk through difficulty in our lives like this. I mean, I'm sure you've heard at some point that voice in your head that tells you, hey, this is happening to you because of sins that you did in the past. And now God's repaying you. I, I know I've heard that. And while that's a natural reaction, everyone look right at me. That's not a biblical one. That's not the way God works. That may be how we naturally respond, but that's not how God works. The storms that we go through in our lives, if you are a believer in Jesus, the difficulties and the storms and the hardships and the pain that you walk through are not because God is angry with you. It's not punitive. How do I know that? Because Jesus died on the cross to pay for every ounce of your sin. He paid it all. So Christians are not punished for our sin. Does God discipline at times? Yes, out of love. But discipline and punishment are completely different things. So you are not, if you are in Christ, you are not being punished. Jesus absorbed God's full wrath against your sin. Such that Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now... No condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And so there's none of that left. Jesus paid it all. And so all that's left now is God's, he's adopted you, fatherly affection towards you as a loving dad. And so let me plead with you for just a minute. If let go of that lie that God is punishing you for past sins. Because if you are in Christ, that's a lie. Jesus paid it all. Not some, and you need to pay a little bit. Grace is crazy, isn't it? He paid it all. And you're like, wow, you don't understand what I've done. I'm so undeserving. And that's the whole point of the Bible. God delights in showing mercy to people who don't deserve it. And it's the point of this text as well. No one deserves it, but God's merciful. And so even when we face heartbreak and tragedy today, we can face that knowing that God hasn't forsaken us. Jesus was forsaken in our place. And that he's actually with us in the midst of it. He doesn't abandon us in our time of darkness in that hour. He's there. And as only a sovereign God can do, he bends everything to the good. So hang on to that. God's not punishing you. But jumping back in here into the text, Hannah's barren. And as devastating and painful as that is in our lives and in our culture and in our society today, it was way, way worse then. Because think about it with me. In that day, Israel's society was agrarian, right? 
It was an agriculture society, which means that the more sons a person had, the more potential laborers there were to work the land. The more workers, the greater the crop's yield. The greater the crop's yield, the more income. The more income, the greater status you had in the society. So that in that society, children, particularly sons, all right, we're talking about that society, children and particularly sons guaranteed that a family would be financially stable and occupy a higher sense and status in society. So that's one reason it was such a big deal. Second reason it was such a big deal in, to have children in that society is that children were the retirement plan. There was no 401k. There was no social security. So the more kids you had, the more likely you would be taken care of when you got older. And then third, having children was necessary for the survival of the nation. The economy and the military were completely dependent on having a large number of children. And so bearing children was a life or death issue, not just for the individual family, but also for the nation, for the country. And so because of all that, women who bore children were, you know, honored. They were heroes. But women who were unable to bear children felt useless. They experienced shame rather than honor. They were looked on with pity rather than respect. The Jewish Talmud actually said that they were as good as dead. That's what Hannah lived in. And so just very practically in that culture, she was told that she had no significance, she had no life, she had no purpose, she had no hope. And so Hannah lives in this pain. The pain that... that all in here who've struggled with infertility or miscarriage live in, and then on top of that, all of this other shaming and looking down upon. And if that wasn't bad enough, on top of that, you've got this other wife, Peninnah, who was very fertile and is very glad to rub it in her face. So look at verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from this city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. This is where the tabernacle was at that time and the Ark of the Covenant was uh, there at Shiloh as well at this time. Where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, we're going to meet all these people later. Hophni and Phinehas are evil people. Eli's not so good himself. Where they were priests of the Lord. On that day, when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So it's like he took two scoops of the mashed potatoes. So ladies, feel free to swoon over that. And her rival, here we go, verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And so when we read that, this story of this woman who lives in just absolute heartbreak, a woman who year after year is verbally attacked and provoked uh, to the point that she won't even eat. As we read that, we're like, 
you know, pinning up, what a jerk. How awful are you to gloat over someone else's misery? To celebrate in the midst of someone else's pain? But before we're too hard on her, let's turn that around on ourselves. Do we do that sometimes? Do we gloat over someone else's misery? Or celebrate in their face? I mean, not. I've, I've seen people, just to give a smaller example perhaps, but it's got huge ramifications for the individual's. I've seen people cheer when a football player for another team gets arrested. Why are we cheering that someone got arrested? Why would we ever celebrate that? What's on their team? This is a person made in the image of God. I've seen people celebrate and cheer when, when their personal rival or a rival of their uh, political candidate or party go, gets involved in some controversy and suffers a collapse. And we celebrate. Why are we celebrating? Someone went through a horrible situation. Their family is broken. There's moral failure. It's heartbreaking. We don't celebrate. That may be the way the world lives. That may be the way the kingdom of the world functions. That's not the way the kingdom of God functions. We don't celebrate tragedy. We don't celebrate sin. We don't celebrate heartbreak. Even in people that might be our rivals or our enemies. What do we do towards it? We love them and we practice neighbor love like Jesus said. Who's your neighbor? The Samaritan. But not Panana. Panina? Panina. What am I saying? Penina. It's like panini at, you know, a sandwich. Penina. Penina was a snake. And notice this. This is something that stood out to me when I read through this. Where is this happening? Like when she does this, where is she doing it? Look at verse 7 again. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Do you see that? She's doing this where you're supposed to gather for worship of God. I mean, the place where hope should reign, the house of God. Instead, that place, Hannah experienced only distress. And so here's something hard and something for us to learn. The church sometimes, it becomes a major league depressing place for those who feel singled out because of their difficulty, their trials, whatever it is they're walking through. Even though this is the place where they need to be most. And so let's learn to be sensitive. And let's learn to be thoughtful and truly thought, like think about it, full about what we say, how we say it, what we joke about. Let's be sensitive in our conduct and in our speech. And while, yeah, let's rejoice in the blessings that God has given to us, let's also think about the fact that someone may be there who your blessing 
is their pain, is their curse, is their difficulty. Think about your words. And let's be sensitive and let's let the house of the Lord be a house of hope and healing, pointing to the hope that can satisfy, which is the whole thing that Hannah is missing this entire time. Because like, here's, here's the main point I want you to think about. As you read this, contextually, all right, it doesn't say it outright, but contextually, what does it seem to be that Hannah like, has her hope set in? What, what is the thing that will fix her problem? What is it in her eyes that is the answer to everything she needs and wants and longs for? It's to have a son. If she can just have a son, then it will be okay. Everything will be all right and she'll have security and she'll have stability and she'll have status and she'll have meaning and she'll have fulfillment and she'll have hope. And so her hope is in her son. He is her savior. Her savior to get her out of her self-defined hell. And folks, we do the same thing. I mean, as one guy pointed out, here's how false gospel, false religion, idolatry works every time. You can see it in Hannah's life. You can see it in our own lives. But first thing you do is you define for yourself a hell. A hell you do not want to live in. A hell, it's not the real hell, but it's your own hell. A hell you do not want to live in. A hell you want to be delivered from. And so for Hannah, it was not having a son. For you, maybe your hell is being single. Maybe your hell is being overweight. Maybe your hell is being lonely. Maybe your hell is being poor. Maybe your hell is being underappreciated. Maybe your hell is having no pleasure. Maybe your hell is not having a lot of free time to yourself. Maybe your hell is having a lot of duties and a lot of obligations. You have to get up in the morning and go to work every single time. Maybe your hell is driving a beater car back and forth to work, sitting in traffic every single time. That's your hell. So you define for yourself this hell, a hell you will not, cannot live in, the hell you've got to get delivered to. And so to get you out of your hell and into your heaven, what do you need? You need a savior. A false functional God. And so if I'm lonely, I need a friend. That's my savior. If I'm broke, I need money. That's my savior. If it's pleasure that I worship, then I need to pursue those things that I think will satisfy me and they become my savior. If it's politics that I worship, then I need my candidate or my party to win. That's my savior. If he or she could just win, it'll all be okay. If I want to have kids, then kids can become my savior and get me out of my childless hell and into my childless heaven. I'll go buy a new car so that I can get out of my vehicular hell and into my vehicular heaven. And so you choose for yourself this hell, and then you choose for yourself a false functional Savior God to get you out of your hell, and you give your life to worshiping and pursuing that thing that will satisfy you. That will satisfy me. That's what I need. If I can get that, everything will be okay. If I can get that, I'll be happy. That's how it works. 
And here's the sickness in us. Calvin said that our hearts are like idol factories. And so we can even take good things, blessings that God gives. Spouses and kids and homes and cars and finances. These are all fine and good things, but we can twist them and use them. Jobs and sports and school. And we can turn them into our idols and they are our savior. If I can just get this. And then we become frustrated because they never deliver. They never bear the weight of the expectations we put on. Man, if I can just have a great husband, everything will be okay. If I could just have a great wife and my marriage was awesome, everything would be okay. If I could just get married, life would be complete. You won't deliver. Those good things won't deliver what you're looking for. Can't. A person can't bear that weight. And so we become frustrated. It doesn't happen. That it didn't work. It didn't satisfy me. The blessing I was looking for, it didn't save me. I'm still in some sort of hell here. But here's the good news. There is a real Savior that will get you out of the real hell and will be with you in the midst of your personal hells. All the time bending them. For God's glory and your good. And this Savior's name is Jesus. And he can do this because he lived a perfect sinless life. And he died a death in your place for your sin. Like you're not forsaken. He was. And then to show that God has accepted it. He rose again from the dead. He's the Savior you need. And so let's stop misplacing. We do it all the time. Like this is a lesson I've learned this before. You have to learn it over and over and over and over again. Let's stop misplacing our hope like Hannah did, putting in her son for her salvation, and really like Israel did, putting in a king. You know, we'll get into that in the weeks to come. If I can just get a king, if we can just get a king, we'll be safe and we'll be secure and we'll be, you know, stable. Hannah's like a little vignette of that. And so let's stop the insanity of just continuing to misplace our hope. And instead, learn to place our hope in true hope. In the Son, she wanted a Son. In the Son, and in the King, Israel wanted a King. We have the King. Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And though at this time in redemption history, Hannah didn't know Jesus was his name. This is exactly what she did in verse 9. She discovers true hope. She stops placing her hope in things that cannot deliver like a son. And she discovers true hope. Look at verse 9 with me. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. All right, so go back to verse 9. I want to read all of that, but verse 9, like this is the turning point. Look at it again. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. 
Right? This is not like a little anecdotal, oh, she finished eating and went into the living room. This is a major, major point. Hannah rose. All right? In the Hebrew, this term here has the connotation of like decisive action. She has decided here. She has made, she's resolved in her heart to, to do something. Something has changed in her heart. Hannah rose. What's changed? Well, look at her prayer in verse 10. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. So she pleads with God to remember her. She pleads to God to remember her. You know, like she took hold of the fact that we just talked about, that, that God isn't uh, absent. He's not against her. She's not being punished in the midst of what's going on in her life. But God, in all His glory, in all His splendor, in all His majesty, in all His sovereignty, and what she's doing that she may not have a clue on, she trusts Him to be good towards her and remember a barren farm girl in a rural place in Israel. God remembers and knows little, broken, insignificant me and you. Intricately. And He loves to listen to us pray. He loves to listen to you cry out to Him. When you pray, it's like talking to your father. When you go to your father, you don't say, Oh, dear dad, you are... Towards God, you would say you're the best dad ever, but towards Bart, you wouldn't say you're the best. Well, towards me, you wouldn't say you're the best dad ever. I really didn't mean that, Bart. I, like, Bart is like an amazing dad. My kids wouldn't say to me, dear dad, you're the best dad. They're like, when we talk, digress, when we talk to God, when you talk to God, you don't have to come with perfect words that are all arranged. Talk to your father. Talk to your dad. Your dad loves to hear you talk to him. Talk to your dad. He loves you. He loves to listen. So she comes and she knows that he remembers her. She's, he's not against her. Whatever he's up to, she may not know. But one commentator you know, I read this week said, she reveals here a belief that the Lord of hosts is the sort of God who cares for small, broken, failed people. That is good news. That means he cares for me. And he cares for you. And then second, she pledges now to give back to God any son that he gave her. Like there at the end of verse 11, she talks about, you know, no razor shall touch his head. This is not a pledge about a hairstyle. This is a pledge about something in the Old Testament called a Nazarite vow. And it's a vow of dedication to God. And one of the signs was a razor would never touch their head. But it's a vow more than that. The, 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 the main point of it is that the, the, the son is given to God, like in the temple. He will grow up in the temple. He won't grow up at home. He'll grow up in the temple to be a servant of God. Number six talks a lot about that if you want to read it. But the point I want you to see in this is that why had she been hoping for a son? She had been hoping for a son so that the son could support her, so that she would have a retirement plan, so that she would have stability, so that she would have security, so that she would have all emotional support. And now she's praying, give me a son, and I am rescinding, I am renouncing all of that that my hope was in. Because this son's not going to be able to do any of that. 
He's not going to grow up in the house. He's not going to give her emotional support. He's not going to be available to take care of her in her old age. He's not going to inherit a land inheritance. The Levites had no land. Yet she still prayed for a son. But now she laid aside every benefit that a son could give her. Son was not her savior anymore. Jesus was her savior. God was her savior. And then after some false accusations from Eli about being drunk, what does she do in verse 18? And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. So she prays, she makes this vow, it's still, give me a son now, but it's not for me anymore, it's for you now. And then she goes home and she eats and her depression is gone. And so notice again, does, does she have a son yet? No. And yet, she's eating and she's no longer sad. And even if she does have a son, it's not going to be, you know, give her all that she had hoped for. But what does she have? She does have joy now. Because it's no longer based on obtaining a son. Hannah's joy is now found in God, the God of her salvation. She had discovered that God is enough. That in the midst of storms, in the midst of difficulty, God is the only constant. He is the anchor for the soul that quiets the storms of our lives. And she's learned that there is joy to be found even when our dreams are still unfulfilled. Even when life is falling apart because we have a God of unfathomable wisdom and strength who has compassion for small, broken, sinful people. And so chapter 2, we'll get into next week, she talks about how now God is her ultimate treasure. And because she has found a God like that, she no longer looks to children to provide her with value or worth. This is the moment of Hannah's salvation. She trusts in God to be her Savior. Not in people, not in circumstances, not in situations. God, regardless of the circumstances and the situations and the people that are in her life. And so now she still prays for a son, like I said, but it's not for herself. God's her treasure. This son is to God, and God gives her a son. She names him Samuel, which means God has heard. And Samuel grows up, and he's the, he's the last and the greatest of the judges, so he's like this transition between judges and the coming monarchy, and then he becomes a prophet and feels almost like a priestly role and almost like a king in Israel, and he anoints Saul and then later anoints David to be the king of Israel. But the point of Hannah's story is not, you know, if you trust God and ask for things long enough, he will automatically and unilaterally give you what you ask for. He might and he might not. Prayer does change things, but it also changes us. And God will always give us what is ultimately best for his glory and our good. Whether we understand it or whether we don't. God is infinite in wisdom. We have limited, fallen, finite, eight-pound brains. 
So we may not get it, but God is always working good and bending things for the good. And so in this life, some of us, we may never have a child despite praying for it. For decades. We may never get married despite praying for it for decades. We may never, you know, find a cure for a disease that we've been praying for for a loved one. We may never see, you know, children reach certain milestones that our other children reach so easily and naturally. Many of us feel like our lives are just this great big gigantic failure and that we never accomplished all that we thought we would have accomplished by this time in our life. Most of us will not live lives that will live on in the pages of history. And so by the world standard, we may die barren. But by God's standards... We die fruitful. By God's standards, like if if we have God, then we have enough because we have the one who has all things. God is the significance. God is the stability. God is the hope. God is the life. God is the meaning. God gives purpose. God is purpose. And so if a loving and all-powerful God is in someone's life, the approval of others becomes inconsequential because you have the approval of the Alpha and the Omega of the universe. And if an all-powerful and all-loving God is in someone's life, that person's future is in capable hands. Not only personally, but parents, for your kids. If an all-powerful and all-loving God is in their life, their future is in capable hands. And if a loving and all-powerful God is in someone's life, that person can endure the hardship, the struggles, because God is enough. Jesus plus nothing still equals everything. And so may our hope be found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. In Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father, teach us the treasure that we have in you. Teach us, remind us the friend that we have in Jesus. Teach us and remind us of the love that you have for broken, sinful, small, and seemingly insignificant people. And teach us to take joy in being even a small cog in the giant machine that is your creation, your world, your kingdom, what you are doing, your story, how you are carrying everything out. Father, teach us and remind us that you are sovereign and you are in control and the world does not spin outside of control. 
But even amidst the heartaches and the tragedies and the wars and the rumors of wars and the difficulties and the, the, the fights and the uh, crime and the sin and the depravity that is our world, still you're there and it's not outside of your control. You are working in it. You do not author sin, but you're still over it. There's nothing more powerful than you. No one can stay your hand. And nothing can separate us from your love. And Father, teach us that to be forgiven and to be loved and to be cared for by the God of the universe... And to know you personally. Like to have a relationship with the creator God. Sustainer. Almighty and infinite. Is better than anything else. We could dream of. Teach us to not misplace our hope. Teach us to not Make foolish trades, trying to gain the whole wide world and forfeit our soul. Teach us to live for what matters and what will echo for all eternity. Fill our hearts with joy and hope because you smile on weak people in desperate need. And that's who we are. In Christ's name.